I and all past and current members of the ACSS team would like to acknowledge that this podcast is being recorded on the traditional lands of the Ngunnawal and Ngambri people and pay my respects to the elders past, present and emerging. We also acknowledge the traditional custodians of each of our delegate hubs where many of our listeners will be based. You are listening to the podcast produced by the Australian Crisis Simulation Summit. We are a volunteer student-led organisation who create and run complex futuristic and alternative crisis simulations in a national effort to help create the next generation of national security experts and leaders. We hope you enjoy and learn from this podcast. This is a moment that requires leadership. China signing a security pact and looking to establish a base. People think I don't like China. I love China. The Pacific region has listed climate change as its number one threat. And so, friends, AUKUS is born. With a failure to invest in renewables. I want to thank uh, that fellow down under. I just have two more words to say. Obama out. Today I'm joined on the podcast by Dennis Richardson. Dennis has been a career public servant since 1969 until his retirement in 2017. He has served in various senior public service roles, including the Department of Prime Minister and Cabinet, as the Director General of ASIO, as the Secretary of Defence, as Secretary of the Department of Foreign Affairs and Trade, and as the Australian Ambassador to the United States. He's conducted multiple reviews into the Australian intelligence community and is one of the few people to have done so. Dennis holds a Bachelor of Arts from the University of Sydney and was made an Officer of the Order of Australia in 2003. I was lucky enough to be joined by Dennis Richardson in Canberra on the 1st of June. We went through his background in the public service. Uh, I asked him some questions about the role of government in society. We discussed his review into the intelligence community that was published in 2020. And then we got into discussing topics surrounding the region, domestic politics, and the United States' staying power in Asia. We end off our discussion with some questions and some answers on the evolution of intelligence throughout Dennis's career and the importance of wargaming in his, in his experience. It was a pleasure to host Dennis. I hope you all enjoy our conversation. Dennis Richardson, good to be with you. Good to have you on. Pleasure, Jackson. Um, so after a long career in the public service, I thought we'd start with some background uh, yep. about your, your experience. Um, so after attending university, you began your career with the Department of External Affairs in 1969. Eventually in 1988, you became head of the Department of Prime Minister and Cabinet's International Division, and then you joined former Prime Minister Bob Hawke's office as the Chief of Staff in 1990. What was it like holding these positions as the Cold War drew to an end? Uh, well, it was... Um, the Cold War didn't dominate my time as Hawke's Chief of Staff. Domestic matters did. Uh, domestic matters always dominate a prime ministerial office. International issues are very important. Uh, when I was with, when I was in Prime Minister and Cabinet, I accompanied uh, Prime Minister Hawke uh, to Washington, uh, London, uh, Bonn, uh, etc. And there, on that trip, uh, the coal uh, you could sense that the Cold War was coming to an end. So it wasn't so much that the Cold War was dominating that period. It was the, uh, it was, you could sense the historic change taking place in the Soviet Union and in Eastern Europe. So it was uh, very much a case of how 
how the end of the Cold War might come about. A lot of uncertainties uh, because uh, you look at the Soviet Union, you look at their nuclear arsenal, what was going to happen to that? How is all of that going to be managed? So it was those issues that were starting to dominate rather than the Cold War per se. Yeah, right. Do you have any uh, Bob Hawke anecdotes that you can share? Yeah, well, he um, he was a he was a Rhodes Scholar, yep. and um, he was very comfortable in reading briefs and the like. Uh, prime ministers are no different to anyone else; they can be very much a product uh, of their of their upbringing, a very very much a product of their own personal experience. I think you'll find that Paul Keating, for instance. Uh, left school at about age 14. Yep. He was more comfortable in verbal oral uh, discussions and that's how he absorbed a lot of information. He read the briefs, obviously, but he was more comfortable in that discourse. Hawke uh, again engaged in discussions and the like but was more comfortable in Keating and just ploughing through the briefs. You'd, any brief you sent back, uh, you sent up to Hawke, you got back with things circled, things underlined, you got a lot of comment on it. It was very clear that he'd gone through it uh, very, very carefully. Yeah, you gave a speech one, one time where you said you had the highest discipline capacity of anybody you'd ever met in your life. Yeah. You, you would still say that's true? Oh, yes. Um, and the example I would give there is um, uh, when... Paul Keating challenged him for the first time in late May uh, 1991. Uh, in late May 1991, um, Hawke uh, immediately got in a lot of his closest cabinet ministers and they spent the following six, seven hours just ploughing through um, tactics uh, ringing people up, doing all sorts of things you would expect would happen in the event of a challenge. He um, he finished all of that around about 1.30 in the morning and then asked for his papers for the meeting the next day of the what was then called the Premier's Conference at 9am. I said to him, Prime Minister, uh, you're, on, uh, you're on top of... Uh, tomorrow's meeting, why don't you get some, go home and get some rest. He insisted on getting his brief. He then spent the next one and a half hours going through his briefing papers for the meeting the next morning. Now, you think of the discipline, yeah. you think of the uh, discipline you need to move from a total focus on your own survival as Prime Minister to a meeting the next day with premiers yeah. and to pay both full attention. Of course. And he just had that capacity to give his total focus to whatever was in front of him and he could move from one to the other uh, in equal measure. He very much believed that you don't waste, uh, you don't waste your time and emotional energy on those things which you can neither control nor significantly influence. Do you think that that is what set him apart as Prime Minister, that he was a hard-working leader that kind of led the pack? He was a very hard-working leader that led the pack. But, look, having said that, 
I've not seen a Prime Minister that doesn't work hard. Uh, I mean, you simply can't do that job unless you're prepared to put in hours a day beyond what anyone else would ever experience in their working life. Uh, despite its popular, despite the fact that it's popular to knock politicians, to knock ministers, to pour scorn on leaders, etc., they work damn hard. Mm. And I think there are very few other people in the community uh, that work as hard or under the pressure that a prime minister and minister would work under. Yeah, well, um, from a personal perspective, could you describe the zeitgeist? Like, you were, you know. Working in Parliament House as one of his top advisors, dealing with the changing strategic environment and like you know the unipolar moment, what was that like for you? Oh well, I I wasn't his main foreign policy advisor. That was Hugh White. Hmm. So Hugh was very much the person who covered that space. As a chief of staff, uh, you have a broader set of responsibilities. And one of your responsibilities is simply to ensure that he's got the relevant advisor with him at any given time, given the issue. So uh, my mind wasn't full of the unipolar moment uh, as, as chief of yeah. staff. And indeed, from, from June of 91 until December of 91, it was all about survival. Yeah. How did you deal with that? working for, you know, a government that was under attack from within, I suppose. Oh, yeah. Well, it was uh, difficult. Um, uh, it was. It's very difficult when you have your political opponent sitting opposite you and your enemy sitting behind you. Mm. Uh, that is, uh, uh, fighting on those two fronts yeah. uh, is, I don't think, ever easy. Um but it is what it is, and you simply deal with what's in front of you. Fair enough. Um, so since that time, you were Director General of ASIO from 1996 to 2005, before you became Australia's ambassador to the United States um, until 2010. Um, how did the world of the 1990s and 2000s differ from the world today in terms of you know, regional dynamics and, and just such as the... Oh, I think in the, in the obvious way, um, China was... Uh, during the 90s and 2000s, very much a rising power. Uh, however, uh, there was a much uh, more comfortable relationship between the US and China than what there is now. Uh, they are now very much strategic competitors. In fact, you had a debate uh, in the early 2000s as to whether they would or would not be strategic competitors. Mm. I think they're always going to be strategic competitors. It was always a case of how, how that would be managed. Um, I think the rise of China took the US more by surprise than Australia. Uh, don't forget that in 1988-89, uh, Ross Garneau, who had been economic advisor to Bob Hawke and Australian ambassador in Beijing, was commissioned to do a major piece of work and it was entitled um, uh, it, uh, the, uh, Northeast, the Northeast Asian Ascendancy. It was about China, Korea and Japan, their growing economies and how important they were going to be to Australia's future. So we always saw China in those terms 
I think the rise of China in the early 2000s up to 2010-12, I think took some people in the US by surprise. How was that report received in Australia? The Ross Garner, yes. oh, uh, very well received. It was it was really about the economic opportunities uh, that China was opening up for Australia. So no, no, that was uh, that was a non-controversial yep. but very forward-leading uh, looking uh, report. Yeah. Um, while you were at ASIO, what was your primary concerns prior to two thousand and one, and did that change after the events of nine eleven? Uh, well, it certainly did change after 9-11, but there was a lot of continuation because we had the the Olympic Games in 2000. Mm. Um, uh, so between when I got there in 1996 and 2000, there was a, a broad shift in focus from counter-espionage through to through to counter-terrorism and the like. Uh, in respect of counter-espionage, of course, uh, Michael Cook, former head of the Office of National Assessment, had been commissioned uh, by the government to do uh, a very intense um, investigation uh, within ASIO in respect of possible Soviet penetration and uh, elements of that inquiry continued after uh, I went to ASIO, and that was an important part of our work for the, for the next 12, 18 months, two years. But there was a slow shift in focus as we moved towards the Olympics mm-hmm. in terms of counter-terrorism, and uh, 9-11 simply accelerated that. It was the main... Prior to that shift, obviously, was the main state you were thinking about the Soviet Union? No, well, the Soviet Union had ceased to exist yep. by '96. It was Russia, uh, not uh, not really. Um, uh, it was more. We were. We were. I mean, uh, between 1996 and 2000, uh, we were looking at at elements of of uh, Islamic extremism, mm. uh, terrorism. Don't forget there had been the Al-Qaeda attacks on the US embassies in Nairobi and Dar es Salaam in 97-98. There had been the attack on the USS Cole in 2000. Uh, in 97 or 98, bin Laden uh, put out his decree... Uh, naming the US and some other Western countries as 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 enemies. Mm. So uh, we that was very much part of the gig prior to two thousand and one. Al Qaeda. We didn't discover Al Qaeda mm. uh, on nine eleven two thousand one. The popular, uh, if you like, the popular media yep. discovered uh, Al Qaeda. On 9/11, but I think intelligence agencies globally, globally, had had that as a focus for some years before. Yeah, right. Um, so, as as ambassador to the US, um, was your role broader, kind of similar to how it was in Bob Hawke's office? Not well, uh, different, 
similar but very different. Um, uh, You don't have uh, the Australian domestic demands that you do in a Prime Minister's office Mm. when you're ambassador to the US. Quite obviously, uh, the Australian domestic environment provides a framework for some of your work, uh, but it is very much the total dimensions of the bilateral relationship with the US and also uh, the relationship with the US as it encompassed other parts of the world. Um, it was, uh, you know, whether it, be, uh, whether it be foreign strategic policy, trade policy, investment, whether it be the Australian diaspora uh, in, the, in the US, cultural connections, uh, you, uh, you name it, in intelligence relationships, uh, all of that is involved in your, in your work. Mm. So. You were there for the global financial crisis. What was it like being so close to ground zero, if you like? It was interesting. Yeah. <laughs> uh, the, um, um, it was, you could see elements of it, you could see elements of it spike in 2007 and then as we moved to, through 2008 it became quite, quite dramatic, very uncertain. Uh, um, only in hindsight can you... Uh, have a degree of comfort uh, with something. Uh, when you're moving through uh, a developing situation, uh, the uncertainty and the ambiguity is something that you have to uh, very much uh, very much deal with. And, of course, a big issue for Australia was um, it was clear that the US uh, would be calling together leaders from major economies uh, there was a debate in the US administration as to whether they would call together the leaders of the G20, which had never previously met, mm. only finance ministers had met previously in the context of the G20, or whether it would be a smaller grouping of G13, 14 or 15. Uh, interestingly enough, um, none of the proposals involving a smaller group of countries uh, a G13, 14 or 15, involved Australia at all. Um, Prime Minister Kevin Rudd was rightly very concerned about that. He got onto that very, very quickly. And he lobbied both the United States and other countries very vigorously in terms of the wisdom of getting the G20 together. He knew that whatever grouping was brought together that it would have, it, it would probably become permanent, mm. and he believed it was essential that Australia be at the table, and uh, he deserves a lot of credit for that. Is there anything else that you think he deserves credit for, but doesn't get recognised for? Well, I think he gets recognised for that. Mm. I, I, I think he does. Uh, very uh, well. He gets uh, proper recognition in terms of the apology. Uh, he gets, uh, I think, he gets proper recognition in terms of his, uh, in terms of the government's response to the global financial crisis. Mm. We didn't go into recession mm. as many others did, uh, despite the fact that he was heavily criticised for the borrowings we undertook. Those borrowings paled into insignificance 
compared to the borrowings we undertook during the pandemic. Um, so, no, uh, and internationally, he was widely respected and highly regarded for his uh, uh, intellectual depth when it came to foreign policy strategic interests, particularly those that revolved around China. Yeah, it seems a bit... Of, I don't want to say waste, but his, uh, his experience and his expertise was on foreign affairs and he came to you know, the Prime Minister's office at a time where economic affairs encompassed almost everything, it seems. Do you think that was a bit, a bit unfortunate? No, no, no. Uh, you, you never back away from being... Uh, you take your opportunity to be Prime Minister when you can and you can't determine the circumstances yeah. in which you become Prime Minister. And um, he... Uh, don't forget, he was Prime Minister. Um, uh, he, he led us through that global financial mm. crisis and led us through it very well, I think. Mm. So... Um, I don't think it was a shame he was a prime minister then. Um, he uh, his time was shorter than what it might have been, but then he went on to be foreign minister mm. uh, under Prime Minister Gillard. So there it all is. Yeah. Um, so back back to your time in the US. Um, apart from the GFC, how would you describe your time as ambassador? Um, well, it's always, however demanding the job in Washington is. It is always enjoyable. It is not a tough job. Um, what do I mean by tough job? If, if you're in Jakarta, if you're in Jakarta at the time that I was in Washington, uh, you were dealing with the aftermath of the bombing of the um, Australian Embassy in September of 2004. You were dealing with a terrorist attack on a hotel in which an Australian official was killed. Uh, you were dealing with a plane crash in Jogjakarta in which an Australian journalist and others uh, were, uh, were badly injured and in some cases killed. Um, that's a tough job because uh, not only do you have the responsibility of the policy issues at hand, you have the demands from the Australian diaspora in terms of their protection and welfare. You also have the demands uh, of ensuring the welfare of your staff. That's a tough job. In Washington, for the most part, um, you don't have to worry too much about the welfare of staff. That's important. Mm. But by and large, they live in a culture that is not grossly dissimilar to our own and apart from family tragedy uh you know if 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 that happens then obviously there are real issues but aside from those most families and the vast majority of people in an embassy like in washington live live comfortably within their environment as do the australian diaspora so you don't have that uh, you don't have that um you don't have that demand for welfare. However, you do have very deep and strong policy challenges uh, and uh, you do have a very intense bilateral relationship between uh, Australia and the US. And, of course, the US has global interests. Uh, we have 
global interests but regional priorities. Uh, the US really, uh, they have priorities all around the world. So you're not only dealing with bilateral issues, you're dealing with issues whether they be in the Middle East, whether they be in Southeast Asia, Northeast Asia, uh, wherever. So it, it, it's intense uh, engagement across the spectrum, but it's always enjoyable. Mm. Uh, however demanding, uh, there are different... As I said to Prime Minister Howard one time, I said, the secret of this job, Prime Minister, is that I think most people would do it for nothing. <laughs> right. Um, could you compare uh, Washington to Canberra at all? Oh, not really. Well, okay. uh, they, are, they are both, they are both uh, government towns. Uh, they both overwhelmingly revolve around the business of government. Yep. Uh, however, uh, Washington is so much bigger. Uh, it must be a real cultural shock. Mm. For, for any American who's never been to Canberra before, to come here and work in the embassy would be a bit of a cultural shock, uh, more so than an Australian uh, going to Washington. And uh, Washington is in its own... It is certainly one of the central political capitals of the world. So it's got that dynamic. It's got, um, it's got think tanks galore. It's got every major business entity in the country has lobby has a lobby representative in Washington so it's got a real a real dynamic and speed to its uh, environment uh, which is um, at a level over and above what you would uh, see in Canberra do you think a US ambassador to Australia would work here for free if they were given the chance a good question many of them certainly have enough money to do <laughs> so <laughs> yeah. uh, uh, many of the uh, many Australian ambassadors have not quite been so well endowed. Yeah. Uh, whether they would work here for free, it's a good question. Yeah. You'd need to put it to them. <laughs> I'll just uh, have to talk to Caroline Kennedy then. Or, although, although you'd need to bear in mind that US officials don't get paid an awful lot. Mm. Uh, US officials get paid far less than Australian officials because there's uh, more of a tradition of movement between government and the private sector and uh, uh, you know, a senior person in administration uh, can move into the private sector and and earn far more than mm. what you could in Australia. So it all balances out uh, in that sense. You're talking about public servants there, or I'm talking about I'm I'm talking about uh, well, uh, don't forget there are uh, your top nine hundred. Your top 800 to 1,000 people across administration are political appointees. Yep. They move in and out, and they can move between really big money and modest income. Your senior public servants who reach assistant secretary level, deputy assistant secretary, some who reach, who reach um, uh, higher than that, um, uh, they also earn very big money when they leave. So... You just can't compare the two salaries and say we're either overpaid or they're underpaid. Yep, yep. fair enough. Um, moving on to your experience as Secretary of the Department of Foreign Affairs and Trade and the Secretary of Department of Defence, um, how did your time in those roles shape your view of crises? Um, well, 
no more shaped, I suppose, uh, uh, my my attitude, approach, all of that uh, to crises was formed long before I got to foreign affairs. And where, where was it formed? Well, it was, um, uh, for a start, uh, uh, in part, uh, uh, in part, well, it goes along over time. Yep. Uh, my uh, my first posting was in uh, Kenya. Uh, and um, w- while we, the embassy, the High Commission also had responsibility for Uganda, and uh, while I was there, Idi Amin overthrew Milton Obote as president, and there were a lot of Australians living in Uganda at the time, at the university and elsewhere, quite a number of Australians. And I remember um, the morning after the coup I went to work and they, the High Commissioner wasn't there, uh, a gentleman called Bob Hamilton, excellent, and when he subsequently got back from Uganda, he got me into his office and he said, Dennis, he said, you might have wondered why I disappeared immediately. There was a coup in Uganda. He said, the lesson in this is that where there's trouble, you go to it. You don't hang back, you go immediately there. Um, the uh, Obviously, um, being, being in Jakarta, um, uh, making a lot of visits to... Uh, uh, East Timor, as it then was, Irian Jaya, as it then was, now Papua Timor Lesse. Um, again, that that shapes you. Being in a prime minister's office uh, when there's a challenge, that's a crisis in its mm. uh, in its own way. And then, of course, being in ASIO. I mean, um, uh, being in ASIO uh, at the time of the. Uh, attacks on the U.S. embassies, the USS Cole um, being there at the time of 9/11, Bali, uh, the attacks on the uh, train in in Spain, the attack on hotels in in uh, in Jakarta, the attack on the embassy in Jakarta in 04, all of that, uh, I suppose, shaped me long before I got to uh, DFAT and defence. Mm, so you say you're the kind of central aspect to your philosophy, uh, if I could say that, is that yeah, going to crisis and going to crises, and along the way you've picked up different um, add-ons, so to speak, in your different experiences. Yeah, and and, uh, and also you learn from those who you work with. Mm. Um, uh, you don't always get things. You learn from prime ministers. You learn from ministers. Uh, the prime ministers that I've worked with. And ministers have been very adept in responding to uh, to uh, to crises. I, I remember uh, Bali. Bali occurred on a Saturday night, um, early Sunday morning, and uh, uh, talking not long thereafter to uh, Prime Minister Howard, uh, to the head of the AFP, and others. Um, Prime Minister Howard was in um, Sydney. Uh, he flew down to uh, Canberra uh, that day, got people together in the lodge uh, where we had a discussion about the way forward. Um, uh, the the decision to send the foreign minister, accompanied by others, including myself, up to Bali and then Jakarta, 
uh, after so you, you you learn you learn from all of that um, when at the time of 911 um, you know that happens at 10 o'clock 11 o'clock at night uh, you find yourself talking to to the attorney general and others you find yourself going into the office where you spend the next 36 hours uh, you you find yourself going to a national security committee meeting of the uh, chaired by the acting prime minister then John Anderson mm. at 7:30 in the morning linked into a telephone call to the prime minister all of that and the way government works yeah. you you uh, you know um, uh, you I suppose uh, start to understand and see the rhythm of government uh, in a crisis and the processes uh, that uh, that come to bear and that are followed mm. during a crisis. When you're having those conversations with the Attorney General, or the Prime Minister, what sort of things are being said? Like, what, what's the what's the um, the attitude? Is it is it you know, the idea that cooler heads will prevail, or or? Oh, it, it is uh, certainly not. Uh, not panic. Mm. Uh, it is, it is rational. Uh, it is uh, non-emotive. Uh, quite obviously, um, uh, you have obvious questions uh, that prime ministers and ministers have on their mind. Uh, one, uh, and not necessarily in this order, but one, uh, who do we think is responsible? Mm. Uh, two. Uh, how many Australians involved? Um, what can we do immediately to to uh, to respond and to uh, uh, to assist the Australians affected? Uh, what can we do to work with other governments? What you know? What what should we do? What's etc. etc. Et how are things working across government? Are departments and agencies working properly together? Mm. What are they doing, etc., etc., etc.? All of that unfolds very quickly. And on, on the on the night of Bali, uh, I think the ADF moved very quickly. The ADF had planes in the air going up to Bali um, almost uh, almost immediately. Needed approval from the Indonesians, etc. But a whole system swings into action very, very quickly. A prime minister and ministers seek to pull that together to ensure there's proper coordination and to ensure that there is a a proper and rational approach going forward. Mm. What do you then view as the most pressing risks facing Australia and our society today? What are the, the crisis points, if you like? Gee, that's a big <laughs> question. <laughs> Uh, In five words or less. <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, look, I, I, I think, uh, I think we still face a risk with uh, with the Russian invasion of Ukraine um, uh, morphing into a wider conflict. Mm. I don't think we can yet put that risk behind us. Uh, we have. Uh, obvious risks in relation to uh, the US and China in respect of Taiwan. Uh, we have the uh, obvious risk of, of, of China taking unilateral military action in respect of Taiwan. We have a risk also 
of the US Congress moving in a, in a direction on Taiwan that would break the status quo, possibly leading to conflict. We need to bear all of that uh, um, uh, in mind. We have obvious challenges closer to home, uh, whether it be, uh, whether it be uh, Pacific Island nations. Uh, we have uh, a continuing need to develop the relationship with Indonesia, particularly economically uh, and the like. And we have lots of domestic issues, um, economic reform, productivity. I mean, people who know far more about that than me speak about that. Mm. And that's clearly important because on a, uh, if you take out immigration on a, on a, on a per capita basis, uh, in terms of per capita income, we're going backwards. Mm. Uh, and um, uh, I don't think we yet have a settled path forward domestically in terms of uh, economic reform and productivity gain. Yeah, well. Um, and, and then you have a lot of the issues that have been raised over the last week or so relating to AI. I think, I think, I think the commentary has got ahead of the reality. Mm. Um, uh, uh, I, I think there are clearly issues there of which we need to be aware. There will come a time when we will need some detailed legislation on all of that, but I think the commentary over the past week, has been, a lot of it's been a bit far-fetched. Yeah, definitely we'll get into that um, a little bit later. Um, yeah. So I'd be, I'd be keen to hear you on those things. Um, but when you stepped back from it all in around 2017, uh, former Prime Minister Malcolm Turnbull noted that you had served 12 Prime Ministers in your career. Um, and given the way that you've been kind of roped back in, I, I suppose it might be, that number might be slightly higher now. Um, but, well, I don't know for sure, but I think I can say with some certainty that you didn't agree with every policy pursued by each Prime Minister. How did you deal with that disagreement? And do you think it's the mark of a good public servant to be able to you know, give frank and fearless advice to in spite of your disagreement? Yeah, look, I've never worked with a Prime Minister or a Minister with whom it's not been possible to give a contrary advice. Mm. Um, uh, giving frank and fearless advice is not about getting something off your chest. Uh, giving frank and fearless advice uh, is about knowing the person you're giving the advice to uh, and... Uh, basically your focus should be on what is the outcome that you think is in the best interests of the country. Uh, that ultimately is what government is about. That's where your focus has got to be as a public servant. And uh, if you believe a particular outcome is important, then uh, what is the best way of achieving that outcome? It's not going to be... Uh, breaking the door down of a Prime Minister's office and shouting at him or her simply to get something off your chest mm. and uh, walking out afterwards, having a coffee with your mate saying, by gee, I told them, didn't I? Mm -hmm. I mean, the, that that achieves nothing. Uh, so you've got to know the personality you're dealing with, you've got to know the issue, and you've got to know... Uh, you, and you've got to pick your fights. Um, uh, you... you uh, the, 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 there's no point in in disagreeing with everything a government is doing. Mm. If there were ten things 
you disagreed with that a government was doing, a question for you is, one, from where I sit, what are the ones over which I can have most influence? And what are the ones that relate to my responsibilities? Secondly, uh, what do I think are the most important of them? What are the most strategic? And you've got to make choices of that kind. And then how do I go about getting the outcome that I think is the right one? So, um, but I, I've never worked, I repeat, I've never worked with a Prime Minister or a Minister in respect of whom it's not been possible to give uh, frank advice. Mm. So were some easier than others on that? Oh, yes. Uh, some are easier than others. Uh, but again, you've got to pick your moment. Yeah, yeah of course. Uh, and, um, uh, you know, I, uh, Prime Minister Howard was always uh, very polite. Mm. Uh, so when I remember, uh, I remember on one occasion uh, at an NSC meeting, in fact, uh, uh, there was a difference between me and uh, a couple of ministers uh, and uh, uh, the, the Prime Minister, he interjected and he said to the ministers, he said, look, he said, Dennis does have a good intellectual point. And as soon as he used the word intellectual, yep. I knew it was thumbs yeah, yeah, down. Yeah, <laughs> but but he, he, he was very polite about it and, and very good. Others are harsher. Yep. Uh, but again... If you're put down in a harsh way, that shouldn't stop you from getting up, dusting yourself off yeah. and going on with it. I I don't have a lot of sympathy uh, for any senior public servant who says that they didn't give the advice they should have done because they were concerned about the reaction they were going to get from the government, the minister or the prime minister. I've got really no sympathy for yeah. that at all. Uh, that, to me, is a coward's excuse. Mm. So you talk about resilience and, I suppose, yeah, giving, giving this advice um, and, and, and you know, kind of dis, um, discerning what you can have influence over and what, um, what you should pursue because obviously you can't pursue everything in terms of disagreement. Yep. Um, is there anything else that distinguishes top public servants in your experience? Luck. <laughs> uh, you, anyone who thinks they've been in certain positions solely through their own individual brilliance is kidding themselves. Yep. Uh, it is luck, circumstance, timing, uh, you, uh, you name it. Yep. Uh, I mean, my, my career was full of good luck along the way. Yep. Well, that's a fair bit of luck. That you've uh, yeah, <laughs> but, but I, I, I did have a lot. Yep, yep, yep. And... and uh, you know, I I could go back over certain things and think to myself, gee, if I had have taken a right-hand turn rather than left-hand turn, it would have been all very different. Yeah, well, it's interesting to hear. I think it's good to acknowledge that as well. Okay. I think. Um, um, so, on the differences between, you know, ASIO, DFAT and Defence, could you compare the culture of those organisations? Well, they're all very different in terms of the demands. Uh, first of all, ASIO, it is a criminal offence 
to publicly reveal the identity of an ASIO officer without approval. That's not the case with uh, foreign affairs and trade or with defence. So that, that, that's an immediate difference. So there's a cloak, a, a legislative legal cloak of secrecy around ASIO. Uh, that does impact on the culture, uh, both good and bad. Um, it, uh, and I can't speak for what the culture is today. It is a much bigger organisation today and size can impact culture too. Um, the, uh, with ASIO is, if you like, that part of government that is paid to be, uh, that is paid to be sensibly suspicious within the law. Uh, when you're in ASIO, you're not paid to think as you might in human services. You're not paid to think as you might in in the Treasury or, or Foreign Affairs. You are paid to look at things with a bit of suspicion. Uh, you are, uh, and you are dealing with a lot of... Uh, you are dealing overwhelmingly with people of bad intent. Yeah. Uh, so, so that, again, influences... Uh, culture. Uh, the challenge there is to avoid a situation where you become so frustrated. In you know, bad guys don't have to follow the rules of the game. Bad guys don't have to worry about the law. The good guys have to work within the law. Mm. And a challenge for good people working in law enforcement and intelligence constantly coming up against bad people is not to is not to think that well they're all they're all breaking the law they're getting away with it bugger it if I just take this shortcut uh, you know I I can nab them mm. I can get them so that that balance and that struggle in your own mind is really uh, a very a very big thing in foreign affairs and defense uh, foreign affairs, is a policy. It, it's a it's a uh, an area that is um, very much characterised by the dynamism of policy. Whether whether it relates to your own national interests or not, there are things happening around the world all the time, which as a government you've got to respond to. Whether you like it or not, you've got to have a view on this. You've got to have a view on that this side of the world, the other side of the world. So there's that dynamic in, in, in the policy space in foreign affairs combined with the slower pace but equally important trade policy negotiation front combined with the need to respond to Australians in trouble overseas, many of whom appear to think that somehow or other the laws of other countries shouldn't apply to them. Uh, you know, for instance, have you ever heard heard of, heard of an Australian in trouble overseas who half of Australians don't think should be back here? Uh, you know, the fact they broke the law, the fact they were stupid, yep. uh, that doesn't matter. They're Australian, they should be back here and the government should be doing everything possible to help them. Yep. You know, and foreign affairs works in that challenge, in that environment. In defence, the, uh, the, you're dealing with 
you're dealing some policy elements are fast moving, many of them are slower, strategic in focus. So they're very fundamental questions you're dealing with. Uh, however, there's not an immediacy in terms of today or tomorrow. There is also the element of enormous project management, you know, multi-billion dollar of, of, of project management. And you've got, uh, uh, you've got the relationship between the ADF uh, and the civilian. You don't have that in ASIO. You don't have that in foreign affairs. So the three organisations, profoundly different in their makeup, very different in in um, in the rhythm of the way the organisations work, and all of that goes together to uh, influence uh, influence the culture to which you can talk about it monolithically, mm. bearing in mind that in defence you can't talk about a culture. Yep. Uh, defence is too big. You know the culture here in it will vary in different parts of Russell. Let alone let, let alone let alone. Uh, yeah, you're not going to get the same uh, the, the same culture in in Russell as you will in Tyndall Air Force Base in the Northern Territory yep, yep. or or Embarra or Pakapunyal. Yep. I mean uh, that's that's just yep, not that's going to happen. Yep. And indeed, you know, uh, try telling the SAS they belong to the Army. Try telling a fast jet fighter uh, that he belongs to the Air Force. <laughs> he or she. I mean, they they. Each group sees themselves a little bit differently, and uh, uh, the big, uh, the big, uh, the amusing thing in defence is the number of groups you'll come across who will tell you they're unique. Mm. Yeah, we're different. Yep. We're unique, and the and the only thing that makes them um, uh, unique is the fact that everyone also thinks they're unique. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> of course. Thank you so much for listening to the first half of the discussion with Dennis. Because of the total length of our discussion, we decided to split the episode into two parts. Part two will be released over the next week, so make sure you enable notifications for the ACSS podcast if you want to be notified when part two is made available. I hope you enjoyed listening and stay tuned for more.